This is coming to the end of our third full day of retreat. By now, everyone on the retreat has come in at least once for a quote-unquote interview uh, or an individual meeting, if you prefer. So I thought we could talk a little bit about the interviews tonight. Actually, what I thought we could talk about, or I could talk about, is uh, what it's like for you before the interview. Uh, the uh, thinking about the interview, which is something that over the years many people have uh, mentioned in interviews, and I certainly know what that experience is like from uh, being a yogi on many retreats myself, or being at Wat Metta, the monastery, uh, and spending time before the uh, teacher meeting period, thinking a lot about uh, the meeting and what I might say. In the time before the interview, we may be uh, thinking about the interview, our thinking may be uh, informed by worry. We're worrying about the interview. The thinking may be informed with, by anxiety, uh, planning what we're going to say, wondering what's going to happen, perhaps even dread of the meeting with the teacher, perhaps excitement, perhaps about thinking about things that you can say that can be impressive, something that, from my experience, many of us do, and again, myself included, sometimes before uh, the meeting with the teacher, there's a proliferation of thinking. Like if you're doing walking meditation in that period, you know, or you're in your room and you're just thinking, 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 oftentimes uh, yogis get stuck. You know, those thoughts about the interview can be really sticky. We can get stuck in them. I can speak from personal experience. Sometimes it's obsessive. Right? Sometimes it's obsessive, our thinking about the interview. So what does the Dharma student do? What's a Dharma student to do? The Dharma student afflicted uh, with that narrative about the interview and the time before the interview, stuck in those thoughts The Buddha, in many of uh, his teachings, uh, makes a differentiation uh, between the Dhamma student or the disciple of the noble ones, as he often refers to uh, the Dhamma student. He makes that distinction between the Dharma student and what he calls, or at least what gets translated as, a run-of-the-mill person, a run-of-the-mill person. I always thought that sounded a little harsh. Uh, sort of like the average everyday person, you know? The average everyday person, a run-of-the-mill person. So the run-of-the-mill person, the run-of-the-mill person uh, uh, is engaging in this thinking uh, about the interview or some narrative that he or she is engaging in in the course of his or her life and doesn't see the thinking. Just feeds on the thoughts and feeds on the thoughts and feeds on the thoughts and engages in the, the, the thoughts and the narrative and the story and doesn't see what he or she is doing. The term we use in our, our uh, vaunted meditator's parlance is there's no space. The term, of course, in the Buddhist teachings is avijja, avijja, ignorance. This is kind of the first level of ignorance. We don't see what we're doing. We don't see what we're doing that's causing suffering. We don't see our thinking. We're engaging in it, but we don't see it. So avijja often gets translated as ignorance. Some of the Thayajans call it unawareness, unawareness. We're not aware, the run-of-the-mill person isn't aware of what he or she is doing in terms of the way he or she is proliferating thought, doesn't see what he or she does is doing, and continues to uh, 
proliferate the thinking, feeds on the thoughts, feeds on the narrative. So, the path to awakening, the path to true happiness begins with coming out of ignorance, coming out of ignorance, and that's a process. You know, that's a process of coming out of ignorance and becoming more and more aware, more and more aware. So the Dhamma student is in this process of coming out of ignorance, coming out of unawareness. And it begins to see, with beginning to see, that he or she is pursuing thinking. Oftentimes people come to meditation because they have an insight, if you will, into their thinking. They realize that they're thinking a lot and they're thinking in ways that are, are, are causing them suffering. They're afflicted by their thinking. And they say, you know, I want to come and learn meditation. Oftentimes when I've taught beginner's classes and we always ask, why are you here? Why do you want to learn meditation? And there's always a few people that say, Got to do something about the thinking. Got to do something. See, that, that's, that's the beginning of coming out of ignorance. That's the beginning of coming out of ignorance. You're starting to see something. Yeah. So that's good. That's really good. I call that the shift, right? You know, the shift happens as you begin to see what you're doing. You're making that shift. You know, the process is be about being more and more aware. You know, the shift from being a run-of-the-mill person to a person of discernment, a Dharma student. A Dharma student is a person of discernment. Begins with moving from in those minutes, moments, hours before coming to the interview uh, it shifts from, in that time, fabricating a narrative about the interview. What am I going to say to the teacher? You know, what are, I don't know what I'm going to say. You know, why do we have to do these interviews? You know, I hate these interviews. You know, I can't wait till it's over. And then i got to do another one tomorrow. <laughs> it shifts. The shift is from just engaging in that to seeing that you're fabricating that narrative to seeing that you're fabricating that narrative, to seeing what you're doing, to seeing what's going on in the mind. That's the shift. The shift is you're seeing it. I used to have different ways, uh, some of them, some of the little methods I used and little strategies, and some of you were subject to them. Uh, in the past, you know, when I would teach beginner's classes or other classes, to teach students about that shift. Uh, uh, one of the things that I would do, sometimes like towards the end of a beginner's class, or maybe another class is, you know, we'd be sitting, it'd be towards the end of like a six-week course, maybe the last, maybe the last, usually the last class I would do it, right? And, uh, uh, and we'd be meditating, and sometimes in these classes, they'd be like, some of you took these classes, they'd be like, 50, 75 people in the class, right? Big room, and I'd be up at the front, you know, looking, you know, didn't have gray hair in those days, looking kind of chipper, up at the front, full of myself maybe as the teacher. So I'd be up at the front, and I, you know, I wanted to teach people the last class about, you know, this moving into being a person of discernment. So as we'd be meditating, and we'd be at the end of the meditation, I'd kind of very quietly get up from my seat and tiptoe in my bare feet, but I, I take my bell with me, and I tiptoe out of the room. I leave the room, it would be a big room, it's 50, 75 people, and I'd kind of close the door, but not all the way, and I'd stand out in the hall, and I'd wait a minute or two, and then I'd ring the bell while I was out in the hall. You know, I'd ring the bell, but I'd stay out in the hall. I'd stay out in the hall, yeah, maybe, you know, for a minute or two, I'd stay out in the hall. And then I'd walk back into the room and I'd say, well, what was that like? You know, when the bell rang and I wasn't there. You know? 
and people would say different things. And, you know, invariably, you know, I have a propensity for asking questions that nobody uh, knows the answer to. Uh, but that's okay. Sometimes that's called the Socratic method. Uh, uh, generally speaking, what, and you know, and of course I was teaching uh, how to be a person of discernment. Uh, generally speaking, uh, 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 you know, people didn't know how to relate to what was going on in a way that was uh, an expression of coming out of ignorance. So people would say different things. Sometimes people would say, I was confused, I didn't know what was going on, I was worried, I was anxious, or whatever. And of course, my question was, did you notice that? Did you notice that? And I would go on to explain that a person of discernment, you know, when the bell rings and the teacher has left the room and he's gone for two, three minutes, and you started to feel anxiety, the person of discernment in practicing mindfulness and coming out of ignorance would say, oh, there's anxiety arising. Oh, there's worry. Oh, there's anger. I'm experiencing anger. See, that's the shift. The shift is like, what's going on? Who is this jerk? Where did he go? You know, to, oh, there's anger arising. So I would say, you know, did you notice the anger arising? Did you see that there was anger arising? Some of you have been in classes when I, when I play little tricks like that. Uh, I remember one time I you know, was doing a class, and I think there's actually at least one person who was there. It might have been their first course. And uh, I said, I'm going to be a little more genteel in, in teaching this thing. So I said, you know, I'm going to read. It was the end of the class, towards the end of the class. It was the sixth and final class, I'm almost sure. And uh, I said, I'm going to read a poem. I would read the poem, The Red Wheelbarrow. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with water beside the white chickens. And I'd say, I think I'll read it again. <laughs> you know? So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. And I'd say, I think I'll read it again. <laughs> and I would read it like six or seven times. I would read it like six or seven times. And then I would say, what was that experience like for you? Yeah. And of course, what I wanted to teach was if there was confusion, anger, anxiety arising, did you notice that? Did anybody notice what was arising in the mind? Yeah. And of course, most people didn't, but you know, they were learning to be a person who comes out of... In a way, it's a really good technique for kind of showing people what the shift is, right? For showing what the shift is. I mean, the shift is something that we have to learn to what it is, but, you know, it, you have to practice. You have to practice. We're not used to uh, having that kind of space and making that shift from you know, being embroiled in a narrative about the interview and pulling back from it and saying, oh, there's thinking about the interview. Now, as a person of discernment, we're beginning to make that shift. We're coming out of ignorance. One more time for the poem. It's a great poem. Right? <laughs> People would say stuff like, oh, I love that poem. Yeah. After you read it for the seventh time, I think I finally got it. <laughs> and then there'd be somebody who'd say, that poem really sucks. <laughs> so seeing, seeing what we're doing, seeing what the mind is doing, seeing the thinking, seeing the anxiety or the worry about the interview is the first step, right? And it's the first step. It's the first step in coming out of ignorance, but it's, it's a crucial step. In our practice, it's a process of deepening an awareness. It's a practice of deepening an awareness, in understanding, in discernment, in discernment. But this is the first step in being a person of discernment. So what often happens as we start to develop this kind of discernment, as we start to come out of ignorance, uh, and, and, and this would often get reported, or this would often be my experience in talking to yogis on retreat who talk to me about seeing the thinking about the interview that come into the interview or some, at some point 
in talking with me. They talk about how they obsess about the interview. Uh, and oftentimes what we do as we begin to see ourselves obsessing about the interview is we have an aversive reaction right, to the thinking. We have an aversive reaction to the thinking. So we see the thinking. We see that we're obsessing about the interview and, and we relate to it in a reactive and aversive way by saying, that's bad, that's terrible. So Zeopis would come in and say to me, you know, I saw myself thinking about the interview. It was just awful. It was awful what I was doing. So this kind of aversion in the seeing actually blocks discernment. It blocks the heart, and it's painful. And it prevents us from developing further wisdom. It's not useful. It's not skillful. So we're learning to be skillful. Or sometimes yogis would say, or we may see ourselves doing this, right? You know, we see ourselves doing this. You, know, you see yourself thinking about the interview. You know, it's, it's a half hour before the interview, and you see yourself thinking about the interview, which is that first step in coming out of unawareness. You see yourself, there's some awareness, and then you react to that by saying, I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be having these thoughts. What's wrong with me? Bad yogi. Bad yogi for having all these thoughts. So, of course, we have to see this. We have to see this judgment of the thinking. Because that judgment also blocks off discernment. The Buddha talked about the issue at hand. At that point, the issue at hand is our judgment, the self-judgment about the way that we're fabricating thoughts about the interview. Does anybody do this? You know, around any kind of thinking? Around thinking about the interview, right? Sometimes it's more subtle. It's just like an annoyance. Ah, oh, I just was having this thinking. It was so annoying, the thinking. I was so annoyed. I'm so annoyed by this thinking. Why doesn't it stop? You know, why can't I stop? It's so irritating. It's so annoying. You know, it's a more subtle layer of, uh, of aversion to the thinking. We're irritated by it. Or maybe they're seeing the thinking about the interview and trying to get rid of it in an unskillful way. Anybody do that? Don't do that! Stop it! You know, in sort of an aversive way. Stop that thinking. Stop it. Shouldn't be doing that. A more subtle, but also not skillful way of relating to the thinking as we begin to come out of unawareness and begin to see the thinking about the interview. Another unskillful way of relating to it is trying to think your way out of the thinking. There's nothing to worry about. You know, you're worrying about the thinking, oh, I'm going to mess up in the interview, and then you, you try to mollify that with, oh, there's nothing to worry about. Dubinin's a great guy. There's nothing to worry about. It's pointless to worry. Why worry? You shouldn't be worrying. Why do you worry? You shouldn't be worrying. So that's using thinking to try to replace thinking, or using unskillful thinking to try to replace unskillful thinking. The Buddha said you can't replace becoming you know, thought worlds with other thought worlds. He said that's trying to clean a dirty rag with another dirty rag. It's trying to clean an oily cloth with another oily cloth. We do that a lot, right? I mean, I know, I know you do that a lot because you tell me you do that. <laughs> you tell me you do that. So that's more subtle, right? That's more subtle. But there's no discernment in that. You're just trying to talk yourself out of it, right? You're just trying to talk yourself out of it. You're using the unskillful habit of mind to try to erase an unskillful habit of mind. So how do we move further out of ignorance towards greater awareness and more discernment? 
person of discernment is committed to greater awareness. The person of discernment doesn't say, well, it's good, I saw the thinking. That's good, it's really good, it's really good. Almost 100 people in that beginner's class didn't see that, you know, when I left the room. They didn't see, you know, it's like I wanted them to see their infuriation with me and how, 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 how ticked off at me they were by leaving the room and leaving them there, you know. But they didn't see that, right? But of course I taught that to them, so maybe they started to see that. You wouldn't see it unless you were taught that, really. I mean, you might have had a moment of clarity that brought them to the class where they started to see their thinking. But it's a training, right? It's mental training. So uh, a person of discernment is trying to become more aware, is trying to become more aware, is committed to greater awareness, more skillful awareness. This is how we move to, toward awakening. So one thing, of course, is just seeing the thinking about the interview. What am I going to say? What can, can I come up with something really good? What would be something, you know, did I have a real insight? Well, maybe I didn't really have an insight, but maybe I can kind of point it off as an insight. You know, that moment, you know, at the, at the, at the dining table, you know, when I saw, you know, it's like, you know, the person of insight might see a discernment, sees that, and one thing you might do is just see that and put it to the side and center in the breath. That's skillful. That's skillful. Just put it to the side. Uh, another level of skillfulness, uh, not necessarily a higher level. Well, yeah, it is a higher level, but, uh, but it's not always what's called for. Let's put it that way, is to just pull back from the thoughts and just observe them for a few moments. I always love that metaphor that uh, Ajahn Amaro, uh, the abbot at uh, Amravati in England, gives for those two, those two methods for relating to the thinking as you're aware of it. He says it's like you know it's like a shooting gallery at a carnival. Again, this probably you know some people this might be uh, you know an outdated metaphor. Like when I was kids, we had carnivals we used to go to or you know, fairs or, you know, they were amusement parks. Like, I, don't, I don't know if you, you could relate this to a video game, but maybe you could. Anyway, in the shooting gallery, like, there's these ducks, right? And you have this gun, you know, and you shoot the ducks, right? So, as Ajahn Amaro would say is, you know, the first method is, like, you see the thoughts, all right, I see the ducks, and you just shoot them down. That's fine. Other times he said, instead of shooting them, you just watch them. You just watch the ducks going along. Right? That's the other method. So that leads to greater discernment because you're starting to understand the thinking by just observing it for a few moments. So you just observe and you let the heart understand. You don't have to do anything. You just observe for a moment or two and let the heart understand. Another methodology for working with the thinking is when we talk about a lot is bringing insight is bringing insight. So seeing the thoughts about the interview, you know, the thoughts of dread, or just the, you know, seeing that you're going into that and, and questioning it. Is it useful? Is it useful to be, you know, going through this narrative about the interview? So, you know, in being skillful, we ask the question and let the heart understand, and let the heart understand the drawbacks in the thinking. And then, of course, and really this can apply to any of those methods, is to observe the thinking, is to observe the thinking about the interview in those moments before the, the, uh, the interview and pull back from it just from a second and have compassion for yourself. Okay? Have compassion for yourself for that thinking that's causing pain and suffering and blocking off the heart. What I really want to focus on today is one of the real key strategies uh, that we teach in terms of developing insight and coming out of unawareness 
into greater awareness, which is to bring awareness to the mind state, to bring awareness to the mind state. So all of those thoughts, and, ev and everybody, you know, based on your karma, has a particular mental pattern that is going to, uh, uh, out of past karma, assert itself uh, in that context, right? So everybody's going to relate to it a little bit differently. Some people are going to have anxiety, some people are going to have worry, some people are going to have fear. I mean, a lot of times it's in those, so some people are going to have planning, some people are, you know, everybody's going to relate to it differently. You know, it could be the same thought, but there's a different mind state that's driving the thought, right? So in going into the thinking or what's arising in the mind with regard to the interview that you're about to go on, or of course any other narrative that you're going through, or any other mental experience that you're going through the course of the day, through, during the course of the day, we will bring awareness to the mind state. So we talk about this very simple acronym that of ABC, very simple process of bringing awareness to what you're feeling. So you notice that you're engaging in anxiety-imbued thoughts about the interview, and you bring awareness to the anxiety, or you're worrying about the interview, and you uh, bring awareness to the worry or the dread that you're feeling, or the anger, or the aversion, the disliking, whatever it is. You bring awareness to what you're feeling. You bring awareness to the mind state as it manifests as a felt sense in the body. So this is a very important skill to develop for a person of discernment. Very important skill to develop in our process of becoming a person of discernment. Nobody here wants to be a run-of-the-mill person, right? You all want to be people of discernment. Buddha teaches us skills, and this is a very important skill to bring awareness to the mind state, to what you're feeling, the felt sense. What, 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 what's going on here? What is this? What does this feel like? Oh, it feels like this. There's this sensation in the chest, this tingling, this tightening, this pull, pulling. You could label it, oh, that's, there's anxiety. I'm experiencing anxiety, the feeling of worry, the feeling of dread, the feeling of anger, the feeling of confusion, the feeling of shame, whatever it is. I have nothing good to say. I have nothing good to say. Yeah. I mean, these are like, this is like a really subtle thing, you know, thinking about the interview, but it's, it tends to be pretty, pretty indicative of karmic patterns that we have, right? You know, that relate to a lot of things. So, this is what this feels like. You know, this is what this feels like. Feels like this. There's this contraction in the chest, in the upper abdomen area. Anxiety, worry, fear. So this is what we're asked to do. This is what we're asked to do. So who's got a scheduled interviews tomorrow? This is your task. It's so probably only like you probably if you're going to sign up for an interview, you probably feel pretty good about what you're going you know, to. You've already got something on your. It's really the ones where you have to sign it, where you you've been given, you know, an appointment. You know, it's like now the pressure's on. You know, I've got an appointment. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta show up and say something. Not everybody. The interviews. Some of you karmically, maybe that's not. Eh, probably most of you. Uh, you know, and I just know that from my own experience, again, and, and also talking to people over the years. But again, this is just one example of uh, how we engender dukkha and what we need to do to come out of our suffering. The key is the felt sense, right? The key is the felt sense. So you have these thoughts... The interview's coming up. Sometimes you don't even have thoughts, right? It's just a feeling that you have. The interview's coming up. You know? The key is being able to have a felt sense in the body of that anxiety, worry, dread, disliking, shame, whatever it is. 
So this really speaks to the importance of mindfulness of the body. Mindfulness of the body. The Buddha said if you can develop mindfulness of the body, you can develop mindfulness of the mind in its most basic level. This is what he's talking about. You have to learn to be mindful of the mind as mind states manifest as form, physical sensation in the body. This is how we develop insight. This is how we develop insight. We have to experience these things in the body and through experiencing them in the body, we understand them on a level that transcends intellectual understanding, right? Intellectual understanding isn't going to free us from you know, these habitual tendencies. Right? Uh, and being able to experience what we're doing in terms of the mind state and our holding onto it in the body enables us to understand it on a deeper level in the body and in the heart, and in the heart. So we learn to experience that mind quality in the body for a second or two, and let the heart understand it, and let the heart understand it. So it requires this mindfulness of the body, or this sensitivity, right? Tanisar Bhikkhu says, insight is sensitivity. So it's a simple practice. It's a simple practice. It's really important in this practice to keep it simple. Its power is in its simplicity. ABC, that's why I love the acronym, which I came up with, I must admit. Uh, you know, we complicate it. The problem is we complicate it. The way we complicate it is by thinking about it, right? You know, by trying to understand it, to relate to it, to get rid of it, to fix it by using the thinking mind, which is what got us into this mix in the first place, into this difficulty. So we're going beyond that, you know, so it means it really requires keeping it simple, simple as possible. So we observe the felt sensation for a couple of seconds and just observe. Ajahn Amaro's Teacher Ajahn Sumedho says, you just observe. He said, oh, there's anxiety, it's like this. Oh, there's disappointment, there's worry, there's fear. It's like this. It's like this. This is what it is. It's like this. It's this sensation. It's like this. So we have to be careful of the tendency to want to do something, to want to do something about it, right? Which, again, what that invariably means is to want to think about it, is to want to think about it. Thinking is sort of our default. We want to think about it, you know, and, and generally what that means is thinking about it, using the mind in the service of our not wanting it, in the service of our lack of acceptance of that mental quality, right? In the service of trying to fix it or get rid of it. There's, there's, there's a degree of conceit involved there, right? There's a degree of conceit as though we could get rid of it. As though we could get rid of it. Yeah, but that's sort of the conceit that, you know, and, and, you know, that conceit is really sort of burned into us in Western culture that we can fix everything by thinking about it. Yeah, most things we can't. You know, the really important things. You can fix a lot of things by thinking about them. You know, but you'll never, at least this is what the Buddha tells us, you know, get beyond just being a run-of-the-mill person. Run-of-the-mill people can fix things by thinking about them, certain things. But the things that really need to be fixed, you know, that are going to enable you to be a person of discernment, a Dhamma student, somebody who you know, lives an awakened life, you know, they can't be fixed by thinking about them. You need to rely on a deeper wisdom, which you have, which you have. It's all about learning to rely on uh, your deeper wisdom. So sometimes I have to, I have to really be a little 
proactive in counteracting the tendency, which again is very ingrained, burned into us, to want to do something. So when I'm feeling that, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, you know, the, the meeting, the interview period with Tanisarubiko at the monastery, you know, and I see myself thinking about it, and what am I going to say, and how am I going to impress the abbot, and how can I come up with something great, you know, uh, I want to just see that and say, okay, there's anxiety. Can I just be with that? And I, you know, but this tendency is to want to do something about it, so I'll just tell myself, like, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything. Just let it be. Just be aware of it. So this is that guiding yourself through the process that I've been talking about so much, right? You don't have to do anything. Just be aware of it. Just be aware of it. So we learn to observe the sensation for a couple of seconds, you know, with space, as the Buddha says, like one person looking at another, or a person sitting in a chair, looking at a person uh, lying down. You know, their space is a function of equanimity, right? Equanimity affords us, you know, the meditation, we're cultivating equanimity. It affords us the ability to have space and to be an observer for at least a few seconds and there, for there to be acceptance, right? As we talked about last night, acceptance is a function of equanimity. So if there's a little bit of space, the heart can understand. The heart can understand the anxiety or the aversion or the disliking. So our task with regard to habitual patterns of thinking, mind states, afflictive emotions, is to develop space. That's our job. That's our job, is to develop space. Right? Our job is to have space and then let the heart do the rest. Let the heart do the rest. So we allow there to be space and allow ourselves to observe, but we let the heart do the rest. We let the heart do the rest. We let the heart understand. Now, it's important to realize that for there to be understanding, there only needs to be a finger snap of space. There only needs to be a moment of space. We think we have to spend time looking at the emotion, right? The anxiety, the fear, the worry, the dread. I have to spend time at it. I have to scrutinize it. But insight happens in a finger snap. Insight happens in a finger snap. Your job is to create a space that lasts for a second or two and let the heart understand. Let the heart understand. Insight happens when there's space and acceptance, equanimity equanimity. So we're working hard here. I mean, that's our job. Our job is to develop equanimity through concentration so that there can be enough space so that we can let the heart understand our suffering. You know, so when there's space, the heart understands. There's insight, the heart. This understanding in the heart includes, and really we're just making enough room so that we can connect to the understanding that is already in the heart. It's already in the heart. We're just blocked off from it. So we're creating enough space there so that we can begin to connect. And you may not realize you're connecting to it in that moment. Sometimes you do. Sometimes you don't. You know? But you're creating enough space so you can connect to that understanding that's already in the heart, the understanding of dukkha. First Noble Truth. This is why the Buddha said this is the First Noble Truth. This is our task, the First Noble Truth. Develop concentration and develop these, these duties of the First Noble Truth to understand dukkha. Concentration enables you the path, which is the heart of the path is concentration, enables you to develop space so that you can understand that which is hard to understand, so that you can understand what the mind can't understand, so that you can understand what you can only understand by knowing it in the body and allowing the heart to consider it. This understanding in the heart 
includes the understanding of dukkha. So uh, understanding comes from letting the heart understand dukkha, not thinking about dukkha, not thinking about suffering, not thinking about suffering. So we think we can think our way into wisdom. We think we think, and, you know, and then we say, you know, I, I don't understand. Yeah, you don't understand. The mind can't understand this stuff. Yeah, this is a deeper wisdom. We're not, you know, we're not trying to be run-of-the-mill people. We're trying to rely on a deeper wisdom so we can you know, live in a way that uh, is transcendent and we can know a greater happiness. <clears throat> so the heart understands what it's like when we're holding on to this anxiety or worry or fear, you know, this dread about going to speak to the teacher. You know, the heart understands what it's like when we cling, the heart understands dukkha. The heart understands that you know when we hold on, the heart is blocked. That's something that heart, it's, you know, the mind can't really understand. What does that mean? The heart is blocked. I mean, that's what dukkha is. You're you're cut off from the heart. The heart understands what that is. I mean, I mean, you all understand that, you know, in the heart, right? It's like don't think about it. You all understand what that is when the heart is blocked, right? It's, it's not an understanding that is up in the mind, but when I say it, you just let it be there, that understanding. It's like, and you just, the heart is like, oh, yeah, I know what it's like when I'm blocked, right? The heart understands that. The heart understands that. The mind goes, I'm a schmuck. Why am I having these thoughts? Uh, you know, that's the run-of-the-mill person. The person of discernment lets his greater potential, the potential of the heart, understand what it is he's doing that's causing him suffering and preventing him from knowing a greater happiness in life. The heart understands that, right? So you know that now, after three days of meditation, because you're a little more connected to the heart, right? This is why we have these Dharma talks on these retreats, because you're a little bit more connected to your heart. And that understanding is... is, is is, 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 is right there for you. The heart understands that the heart is blocked. The heart understands dukkha. This understanding transcends intellectual understanding. It's an understanding that you know by experiencing that anxiety or worry in the body and knowing it in the heart. The heart also understands what it's like when we're not clinging. You know, in that moment of awareness, in the finger snap of awareness of that feeling of anxiety, you know, there's a little bit of space there, and that space is free from clinging. Right? That space is free from clinging. So you begin to start to get a sense in the body. Maybe it's just a finger snap when you bring awareness that, oh, you know, you know it's, it's that inarticulate understanding of what it's like when you're not clinging just in that finger snap of a moment when there's some space. So we begin to understand that we have the potential to not cling, to not cling. See, awareness, awareness leads you to that understanding. If you can bring understand, awareness to your experience, you begin to understand what it's like when you're not clinging. You begin to understand that you have the potential to not cling begin to understand what it's like when you don't cling. You just bring awareness to the experience. You see what it's like when you don't cling. Maybe it's just for a moment. You begin to understand that what you're clinging to, the anxiety, the fear, the whatever, that you're experiencing in its form in the body, doesn't have to be held onto. It's anatta. It's not self. The heart understands that. You can understand that in the body. The mind can't get wrap, can't wrap itself around the idea of not self. You know, that's a transcendent understanding. It's an understanding that can only be developed in the body and known in the heart. Through just bringing awareness to our experience, we begin to connect to the understanding in the body and in the heart of anatta that you don't have to hold on. You know, sometimes we say, I don't understand not-self. Of course you don't. You know, because you're trying to understand it with the mind. You can't comprehend not-self with the intellectual mind. You can only understand it in the heart. 
So our wisdom that we're seeking to develop is the wisdom of the heart that comes through awareness. Letting go occurs when we allow the heart to understand clinging by bringing awareness to it. The heart is what lets go. The heart is what lets go. Letting go is a function of the wisdom in the heart and the compassion in the heart. It's a function of love. We let go out of love. Letting go only happens out of love. You love yourself enough to let go of the things that you're holding on to. But that love is in the heart. This is why the metta is so important, the practice, because we're beginning to connect more into our love for ourselves. So we have these qualities of wisdom, of compassion, of love. We have these qualities in the heart. You know, our job is learning to put them to good use. So this is what you're doing. You know, when you're when you're kind of walking back to pit hall, you know, on your way to the interview, and it's like, I don't want to do this. Ah, oh, I'm dreading this. You know, and you bring awareness to that feeling of dread. You know, and just bring a simple awareness to it and let the heart understand it. You're putting these qualities to good use of wisdom. You're putting your wisdom, your innate wisdom, to good use. So in ABC, we bring awareness to the emotion. We go to the breath. We find our center. We come to the moment. We come into the moment. We come into the moment. The breath enables us to maintain some space. You know, we can just maintain a little bit of space, and if we can maintain that space, we can look into the heart for compassion. Because compassion is in the heart. The space enables us to have access to what's in the heart. In response to the dread and the fear and the worry and the disliking of having to go to the interview, the heart responds with compassion. With compassion. Not, oh my God, what a dummy you are. Why are you having these thoughts? You've got to stop having... The heart responds with compassion. The heart responds with compassion. So we look into the heart. Sometimes we can just ask, is there compassion? Can I find compassion in the heart? It's right there. With space and acceptance of the emotion, we're able to connect to compassion. So in these days on the retreat, this is, this is a great time to practice. You know, this is a great time to practice in natural meditation in particular, right? Because that's when a lot of the things come up. You know, there's just, that's just one example. Maybe there's, you know, you have a, a difficult meditation and you walk out of the hall and it's like you judge yourself. Oh, there's judgment. Let me bring awareness to judgment. You know? Or uh, you feel an and some anxiety or worry about something that's going to happen in the future. Oh, there's worry. Or you have a feeling like, everybody's better than me. Oh, there's the feeling of everybody's better than me. Anybody ever have that one? Or you have the feeling, I'm better than everybody else. Oh, I feel that. Okay, that's what that feels like. That's even worse than everybody's better than me. There's a feeling of annoyance. Anybody get annoyed by anything? A sound? Another person, something, the room, feeling of annoyance arises. Bring awareness to that. It's a lot of these subtle things that come up in the natural meditation or in the walking meditation. Walking meditation, you can pause. You know, feeling of, uh, of worry about the next sitting. That's one that I would get a lot in retreat. Oh, Got to go into the hall. You know, the meditation hasn't been going well. You know, what if I this one? What if this one? You know, if, you know, if this one doesn't go well, I, I just think I'm a goner on this retreat. All right. Well, what's all right? There's that feeling of of anxiety about the meditation. Right? I mean, there's. Do I have to go through the list of all the things that are there? Now, the benefit of the retreat, of course, is you know, there's a lot more space, and we're, there's less distraction, so we can pay attention to these things and learn to develop 
our ability as a person of discernment. We're developing discernment. We're developing trust and awareness. We're developing awareness, right? We're developing awareness. We're developing trust and awareness. We're developing trust in the heart. We're developing trust in our innate wisdom. We're learning to use our innate wisdom. You've got to learn to use your innate wisdom if you want to move beyond being a run-of-the-mill person. We're learning to use our potential. We're learning to use our potential as a human being. The great blessing of this birth, this fortunate birth in this human realm, that we have these potentials of the heart, of innate wisdom, of compassion, of love. This is our greatest potential as a human being. This is our greatest potential as a human being, the potential of the heart, of wisdom, compassion, of love. Most people don't use that. It's like when you were in school, ah, he had great potential, but he never, you know, never really panned out. It's like, you're, you know, you're doing it. You're here and you're doing it. You know, you're learning to make use of your greatest potential. We're making an effort in being here to be a person of discernment, to use our greatest potential. This is your good karma. You know, this is your good karma that's got you to this place. Most people never get to this place. Most people never get to this place. Yeah. This is the best and the brightest right here. Right here. You've made it to this life which has given you this incredible potential for, for, for wisdom and compassion and love. You've made it to this path, this spiritual path, this transcendent path. You've made it to this place where you're moving toward, and you're already moving beyond, you already have moved beyond being a run-of-the-mill person. You're in the process of being a person of discernment, somebody living in a transcendent way, a spiritual life, a spiritual life. You know, we're living in a way in which we seek happiness beyond simple earthly gratifications. That's what most people are looking for. You know, most people in the human realm are just a few, just a few inches above the bear and the compost. looking for happiness in conditioned things. That's all the bear is doing, looking for happiness in conditioned things. Sense pleasure, money, possessions, status and praise, a lesser happiness. So we're moving beyond, the way that we move beyond to a spiritual life, a transcendent life, a greater happiness is by coming out of ignorance. So this little tableau that I've kind of really drawn out of thinking about the interview, you know, is, is, is actually a very good example of how we learn to come out of avicca and ignorance, and how we learn to live in a transcendent way, a spiritual life. Being a person of discernment, we move towards the happiness of heart, a happiness that transcends conditioned things, a true happiness, a happiness that doesn't die.